Would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6? I think it's on page 1020 or so if you're using a pew Bible. Page 1020, Luke chapter 6. And any children here can be just kindergarten to second grade and go to children's church. And uh, those of you in the children's choir can go to children's choir. Luke chapter 6. Way, way too many turnovers. Way too many turnovers. Just, ah, they killed themselves last night. What can you say? (laughs) Luke chapter 6. Study verses 37 to 42. Let me read the text, then we'll jump into it. Do not judge... And you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, today we come to Luke chapter 6, this passage on judging, and we're in a a series of teachings in Luke right now, in Luke 6, in which Jesus is telling us what it looks like to live as a member of God's kingdom. Where where He's telling us that if we're going to be followers of Christ, there's a certain kind of lifestyle that we adopt. And the thing that's striking that we've been seeing the last couple of Sundays is how radically different the ways of the kingdom of God are from the ways of the kingdom of this world. Uh, two Sundays ago, we studied those Beatitudes that Dave was up here talking about a few minutes ago. Do you remember that in verses 20 through 26? Where basically Jesus tells us that uh, as citizens of God's kingdom, we should be motivated by and find our joy and happiness in the things of the world to come. The, the, thing, the, the thing that should give me joy and satisfaction is God. And, and it's so different from the world because the world says, look, if you want to be happy, you just need more money, you need a better job, you need a bigger house, you need a bigger boat, you need sex, food, entertainment, DVDs, sports. That's what will make you more happy. And, and, and Jesus says, no, 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 that stuff's going to fade away. Real satisfaction is known in following Christ. It's so different from the way of the world that Christ calls us. And then last Sunday, we studied love your enemies. Love your enemies. And again, we saw how just amazingly distinct that is from the way our world operates. You know, in other words, Jesus is saying, if someone hates me, if they hate my guts, if somebody wants to hurt me and they're insulting me and talking bad about me behind my back and they're going to sue me and they're going to lie about me, that my response as a Christian is to love that person and be kind and to give and if they want, you know, my shirt, I should give them my cloak too. It's just so radically different from the way 
I operate and from the way the world operates. Well, today Jesus gives us another one of his. This is how it is in the kingdom of God. And this time it's, it's about judging, which is really an extension of loving your enemies. I mean, you can't separate love your enemies from do not judge. They, they're kind of related. They, they interpret one another. But So in a sense, judging is a, uh, this topic of judging is about how we go about loving our enemies. And notice what he says in verse 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. And when I was studying this passage, I had to ask myself the question, what does he mean by that? What does it mean not to judge? And I think it's an important question because uh, is Jesus saying that I'm never allowed to make moral assessments of other people's actions or behaviors or lifestyles? Is it wrong? Is that what Jesus is saying, that it's wrong for me to look at something and say, ooh, that was wrong what that person did? Is that what Jesus is saying? If my kids are misbehaving and doing something naughty, and I say, stop it! That was wrong! You're going in time out. Have I just violated Jesus' command here? Have I judged by making a moral assessment or evaluation of somebody? Uh, If somebody in the church, let's say a person who is a member of this church, or a leader of this church, or or a pastor or an elder, uh, like myself, if we were caught in some kind of gross malfeasance, like, like, let's say, you know, I was involved in embezzlement or something in the church funds. Or let's say a church leader was having an affair. Or, or God forbid, there was sexual abuse in the church. Or let's say that somebody had started a Bible study in the church and they were gathering people around them and they were teaching something that was just patently false doctrine. Like, you know, I don't know, that, that Jesus you know, wasn't the Son of God or the Trinity wasn't true. You know, some like basic tenet of Christianity and they were promoting false teaching in the church. Does that mean that we as a church should say, well, you know, we're not supposed to judge. Can't really address that. Well, we're not judging. No, no, Jesus told us not to judge, so that's fine, just go ahead and do that. I mean, is that what Christ is saying? And I don't think so. I think when Jesus is saying, do not judge, He's not talking about the use of our discernment to make moral evaluations of people, lifestyles, choices, things that people say. It's really impossible not to. And if you notice, uh, even in this text, Jesus himself makes moral assessments. Look down to verse 41, which we just read. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you shall fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! That's pretty judgmental. It is judging. He's telling me that if I do that, I'm a hypocrite. He's made a, a, a moral assessment of me if I engage in that behavior. Or put a finger uh, here in Luke 6 and turn over to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And look at verse 42. Here Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he starts judging them. Verse 42. Luke chapter 11. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all your other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Verse 44, Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. And goes on and on. That's, that's pretty pointed. I mean, here's Jesus who tells us not to judge and then 
he seems to be making some pretty pointed statements himself. And I think this is an important thing to address because we live in a relativistic culture. Uh, as you know, a relativism is the idea or philosophy that there are no moral absolutes, that there's nothing that's absolutely true out there. And, and this is an attitude that most people have today, uh, that, that there's nothing that's always true for everybody everywhere throughout history. And so people will say today, well, you know, that, that's, that's okay for you, but it's just not okay for me. Or this is something that's true for me, and, and it may not be true for you, but it's true for me. So there's this idea that there really isn't truth with a capital T. There's just kind of lots of opinions out there, and everyone has their own opinion, and every opinion's valued, and every morality's valid. And, and that's kind of the way our culture operates. And, and I, I think this is important because if you say to the average person in our culture, do not judge, I think most people will go, uh-huh, right, no one should judge. Judging's bad. But what our culture means by that is it is always wrong to make any kind of moral assessment. So that even the most far-out, liberal, unchristian, relativistic, atheistic, anti-Christian person from Cambridge might, you know, read these verses about not judging and they would go, right, I agree with Jesus, we shouldn't judge. But, you know, is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus telling us that we should never make moral assessments? And I think the answer is a resounding no. Of course we make moral assessments. In fact, the more you know Jesus, the more you, you draw close to Him, the more you immerse yourself in the Bible, the more you're going to see right and wrong. The more you're going to see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your own life. And so the, the issues of holiness and sin are going to become more clear, not less clear and, and fuzzy. So, of course, we make moral assessments. So, what's Jesus talking about? What, what's his uh, point back in Luke chapter 6 then, when he says, do not judge? And I think this is what it is. I think what Jesus is telling us is he's prohibiting a general orientation toward relationships with others that is primarily marked by judgmentalism and a condemning attitude. Jesus is prohibiting an approach to personal relationships, both with enemies and with friends, that is marked by that critical spirit. And, you know, we all get in that spirit sometimes. You know, we're like a coiled spring, just ready to point out people's faults and what's wrong with others. And we, we get all self-righteous, like we know it, and we're arrogant, and we're looking down our moral nose at everybody else. And, well, you know, they do that, and he, he did that. And, you know, and we just go around talking about why everyone else is you know, not as good and, and why everyone else has blown it in some way. It's the talk radio syndrome. You turn on talk radio and sometimes it just drives me crazy because it's just, you know, everyone's calling up and everyone's right. No one ever calls up talk radio and says, hey, look, I'm just calling to tell you what, how wrong I am and how stupid I am. You know, and no, everyone calls up and they're like, well, of course, if they just did this. Or, blah, 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 and, you know, that's all it is. And it's all these people who are self-righteous and think they know it and everyone's talking and yelling past each other. And, you know, sometimes it's interesting and sometimes it can just be like crying out loud. Are we all really that right? And so Jesus is warning against that kind of critical condemning attitude that is always looking for ways to point out flaws and errors and judgments in other people. It's quick to judge and put people down. I, I was thinking of an illustration for this. Um, I don't know how many of you play video games, or if you don't, probably your kids do or your grandchildren do. But, but there's all different kinds of video games. There's a billion-dollar-a-year industry in America. And there's a genre of video game called a first-person shooter video game. 
And just to tell you what that means, if you don't know, ask your kids. Ask them if they ever played Halo or Half-Life or some of these games. Basically, a, a, you know, a video game, you want, you're playing the game and you usually have a character on the screen, like the, you know, it's a football player or a little alien or whatever you are on the screen. You see yourself running around the screen and it's a typical sort of format for a video game. In a first-person game, you actually see the, the game environment from the perspective of the player. So what you see in front of you on the screen is a three-dimensional world. You don't see yourself. It's like, imagine if your eyes were the TV screen. That's what you're looking out on. Uh, so it's a first-person, you get a first-person perspective. The only thing you see of yourself in this kind of game is your hand with a gun in it. <laughs> that's it. So you're walking around a three-dimensional world. It's kind of like a virtual game of laser tag or paintball or something. And you're walking around the world looking for people. And there's other people playing the game, and they're walking around looking for you. And so the whole game is about acquiring targets and shooting at people. Uh, and I thought, you know, that's kind of what Jesus is condemning. An approach to life where you're always in first-person shooter mode. You're just walking around, and people are just kind of targets to blast, to criticize, to condemn. You walk around, gun is up, and you're looking for a target. It doesn't matter who it is, but you're going to find some way to find fault with people. And, of course, the Pharisees were the masters of this. The Pharisees were the original first-person shooters. They would have been great at Halo, I suspect. They, uh, they, they are, had prejudged so many types of people so that when they met people, they instantly knew whether those people were in or out without ever even having to interact with them. Pharisees had the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And so when those people came around, they just said, oh, I know who you are. And they're judged without even a chance to interact. So when Jesus comes into the picture and Jesus goes to a party with all the tax collectors and sinners and bad people, the Pharisees are like, what are you doing? Why are you eating with them? And Jesus says, well, that's why I came. To rescue these people from their sins. You know, they're the sick people and I'm a doctor. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're in sin, but the point is we're here to bring God's mercy to them, people. But the Pharisees, because they had an overall orientation toward judgment and condemnation, they couldn't go there with Jesus. Their hearts weren't open to the possibility that God might come in order to save those people from those destructive life patterns and from the sin in their lives. So Christ is telling us that if we go through life with that kind of judgmental approach, we will be judged. If we go through that life with that kind of condemning attitude, we will be condemned. And it's really a challenge because we all have people, categories of people that we have written off. We all have boxes, and if some person is in a certain type of box, the walls go up, the heart constricts, love is withdrawn, judgment goes out, gun is up. And you know who that kind of person is for you. It's different for all of us. Uh, for some of you, it may be the, you know, that liberal, democratic, Cambridge person who's an animal rights activist and a vegetarian and all that stuff. And you meet that kind of person, you're just like, I know your type, we're done. Or maybe for you, it's the fundamentalist, conservative, right-wing, Rush Limbaugh ditto head from Georgia. And you meet that kind of person, you're like, ooh, no touchy, you know, no thanks. And, and so you don't, you just keep your arm out. Maybe it's socioeconomic. Maybe you meet someone who's a union carpenter. You're like, union types. Oh, I know your type. No thanks. Or, or maybe it's, you know, someone who's a VP in a big company and they have a nice suit and they drive a Saab and they live in X town, whatever it is. And you meet them and you're like, hmm, yeah, 
No thanks. Or maybe it's theological. A lot of times, even among Christians, we, we put each other in the categories and then those categories become walls which we will not cross to show the love and mercy of God. So, uh, oh, you're charismatic. Ah. You know. Oh, you're Catholic. Ah. Okay. Okay. Baptist? Oh, well. Uh, isn't that interesting? I think I need to go. It's, you know, sometimes it's <laughs> theological issues. You know, someone's an Arminian. Or someone's a Calvinist. Although I can't understand why anyone would have a problem with Calvinism. It just makes no sense to me, but people do, apparently. And we find out these, these theological categories, and whatever, we've prejudged, we've approached people already with a condemning attitude, and there's no room then for the grace of God to flow through us because we've damned it up before it even had a chance to flow out. And, and Christ is telling us that if we're going to follow Him, we can't have that kind of orientation toward people. And that if I do, if I am a man who is primarily marked by my swiftness to judge, condemn, box in, point fingers, criticize, find fault, then guess what? That's what I'm going to get to. Instead, Jesus calls us to a different way, the way of the kingdom of God. If you look at verse 37, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give. And it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's the principle. So Christ, instead of condemning and judging, calls me to forgiveness. As a Christian who's been forgiven, like we just sang about in all these songs, if I've been forgiven my sins, then I have a calling by God to forgive those who've hurt me, no matter who they are or what they've done. Is forgiveness hard? Yes. Do you have to sometimes go through a process and keep forgiving? Yes. But we are called, we are commanded. This is not optional for Christians. This is what Christ has told me to do when somebody has hurt me, whether it's a little hurt or a big hurt. I mean, let's, you know, is there someone that you need to forgive? Let's just, you know, put the sermon aside for a second. It's a flat-out question. Is there someone you need to forgive? Maybe you're driving to church here this morning and you're with your family in the car and, you know, you're going at each other and the you know, spouses or the kids or whatever, and you're mad and there's this huge argument, then you get inside the church and it's like, hi, hi, how you doing? Great. Too bad about those pads. I know. <laughs> Amazing love. You know, you're singing. But, you know, inside, inside it's like, can't believe she said that to me. Oh, I should have said this. And you know, like, you got to forgive. Forgiveness does not mean that we ignore rights and wrongs. What it means is that we take people off our hook and we let God be the policeman. That's all. So it's not like saying there's no right and wrong. It's just saying, God, that's your business. My job is to forgive. Uh, maybe the person you need to forgive is someone you've been angry at for decades. Maybe they're dead. But you have built up such a reservoir of bitterness in your heart toward that person that your resentment toward them has almost become part of your personality. That you can't even understand a person apart from the bitterness and resentment that's in them. And I'm going to tell you, you've got to just let the sledgehammer of the Holy Spirit smash that dam of unforgiveness and let that bitterness just run out and be free from it if you're going to follow Jesus. 
We have to do the hard work of forgiving. And maybe it's something that you have to forgive, and then you know what? You come back the next day, the bitterness is creeping in, you've got to forgive again. Sometimes it's a process, but we are called to forgiveness, which is so radically different from the ways of this world. He's called, we're called to give. Look at that. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. As Christians, we, we need to be a giving people. And we need to give confidently because we know God's going to give to us. So if you need something from me, even if I don't like you or you're my enemy, I can give it to you freely without stressing about it at all. Because I know that God is going to give to me far more than I could ever give to you. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. We give and God outgives us. You have this great image. A, a full, what is it? How does it go again? Somebody a measure. Let me just read it. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. So this is an imagery from the um, marketplace. If you're in Palestine, you're going to get some grain. You go to the guy who sells grain, and uh, he's, what happens is you both kneel down like this. He puts the measuring thing in his lap, and he pours some grain in. Okay, and you're kneeling down in front of him. He pours the grain in, then he shakes it, presses it to make sure that all the grain's getting packed in. It's not like, you know, a bag of potato chips where you buy it and you open it up, it's half full. You know? <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> but it's like he presses it, and he pours some more grain in, shake it, press it, a little more grain, shake it, shake it, shake it, press it, press it, and then heap it over so that by the time it's ready to be given to you, you know you're not getting gypped. And then what happens is you take your robe and you hold out your robe, and then the guy takes the measuring thing and he dumps it into your lap. And now you, then you sort of take your robe with your grain and you put it into your bucket or whatever. And that's how the transaction was done. So the imagery is, if I give to you, even if you're my enemy, God is like shaking, shaking, pressing, pressing. He's going to give such a blessing to me that it's going to make the blessing I gave to you seem totally small. Because that's how it is in the kingdom of God. So we can give freely. We can forgive. We can give. And the other, thing, the other thing is is that it's not just forgiveness and giving, but there's an underlying heart attitude of humility and willingness to criticize ourselves. So the worldly way is judgmentalness, condemnation, and self-righteousness and arrogance. But the way of God is forgiving, giving, and humble self-criticalness. Being willing to see the faults in myself, which is what verses 41 to 42 are all about. Verse 41, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? <clears throat> so Jesus is using kind of a cartoon imagery here. This is hyperbole. It's exaggerated language. It, you, know, you could see this in some kid's cartoon, some guy with a big plank sticking out of his eye. Verse 42, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the imagery here is, you know, we've all had this. You've been working outside or something, you get something in your eye, you just cannot get it out, you're rubbing it, you're rubbing it, your eye's getting red, it's watering, it won't come out. Maybe it's an eyelash or something. So what do we do? You go to the bathroom, nice, clean mirror, you turn on the lights, it's really bright, and you, you know, go into the mirror like that, and you, and you kind of just... And then you get it out, right? Now, what if you live back then and you don't have nice, shiny, clear mirrors and you don't have bright lights in your vanity? You go to your friend and you go, someone you trust, and you say, hey, uh, could you, uh, you know, help me out with this? You get this speck out of my eye. So you come to my house, you have a speck, you knock on my door, I come to the door, and I'm like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm swinging this thing around. And who, who is that? Is that? Oh yeah, I think. Good to see you. <laughs> what is it? Uh, I got a speck in my. Oh no problem. I'll take care of that for you. You know, whack, and I'm hitting you with the plank. It's just you know it, that's the idea. It's just supposed to be a ridiculous, over the top, cartoony kind of image Jesus is giving us to illustrate just how ridiculous we can be with our urgency to go fix other people and find out their faults, but not even seeing the huge piece of timber jutting forth from our own eyes. That's the idea. I think it's kind of the ancient version of what we say today when we say every time you point a finger at someone else, right? there's three pointing back at you. I think it's just the same idea except a different metaphor. And so what Jesus is saying is you have to be willing to take that plank out of your own eye if you're going to go help any other people. And so we have to have, as Christians, humility, even when we're helping people, because there, there is a time to you know, help someone else out. But first, we have to make sure the plank is out of our eye. I was thinking about this class that uh, Pastor Seth is teaching downstairs between the services. He's teaching a class on uh, homosexuality, what the Bible says, and how we deal with that as people who are living in Massachusetts. And I think this is such a great class. We have to talk about this. This is an issue, people, that is ripping churches apart and ripping denominations apart all around the country. And thank God that hasn't happened here. So let's talk about this in a you know, rational way with one another before those kinds of things come here. And, and let's see what the Bible has to say. And let's see how to live that way. And so that's great. I think this is a great class. I know a lot of you are attending it. It's very full. Because people really want to talk about this. And rightly so. I'm all for it. But here's my question. If after this class was over, Seth said, okay, I'm doing another six-week class. This one's going to be on the topic of greed and materialism. (laughs) Would it be packed? Would people be sending me emails like they have been? Do you got the sermon notes and the tape for that? And are there notes? Because I want want to learn about this. And that's right. We we do want to learn. But would we want to learn about greed and materialism? Hmm? You know, the best studies we have, uh, the best research is done today, indicates that uh, those who are in a homosexual lifestyle make up anywhere from 1% to, at most, 3% of the population. So it's easy when you're in the 97% to get in a snit about it. But when it's something like greed, which affects something you know, between like 105 and 110% of Americans, <clears throat> oh, well, that's my money. That's my personal business. That's my private life. That's none of your business. That's my own thing. (laughs) We use the same language when it comes to greed and things like that. And so we need to study these things. And I think it's wonderful. But I'm just saying that in the process, we have to have an attitude of willingness to take that big piece of wood out of our eye before we go and help others. And should we help others? Yes. Notice how the verse ends. He says, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus does not say, no one can judge anyone, and so no one can ever point out any faults with anyone, and whatever's true for you is true for you, and whatever's fine for you is fine for you, and we can never make any moral assessments. That's what our culture says. Jesus was not a relativist. There is a place for helping each other follow Christ and holding each other accountable. In fact, that's one of the best parts of the church. You know, we had all these small group leaders up here and we have this church here. Why do we do all this? Because as Christians, I need you. Because I do look at life from that first person perspective 
And, I, and as a first, from the first person perspective, you don't see yourself. And so I need other people who are looking at me to go, you know, Jeremy, uh, you know, when we were all standing around talking the other day and you said that thing with your wife there about her, and I know you're joking, but you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't very thoughtful. I mean, I, how do you think she felt about that? And I don't know, she, maybe you should just be a little more careful, you know, how you talk about your wife in front of other people. I mean, I know you're just joking, but, you know, you've got to really honor her a little more. And, and then I say, ow, uh, Hmm. And I'm mad. And I'm, mir- I'm mad at you that you told me that. And then I go home, I think about it, and I go, Yeah, that's, that's, you got a point there. <laughs> and then that helps me. And that's how it is in the body of Christ. And you know, sometimes uh, there's something else in the Bible that's very clearly taught that's called church discipline, which we in the American church do not practice in disobedience to the Scriptures. But one of the things the church is called to do is if, if there are times when there's someone in the church who is flagrantly unrepentant and disobedient in a gross sort of immorality, the church is called upon to put disciplinary pressure on the person. I know this sounds so weird to us as Americans, but it's in the Bible. I mean, Jesus taught it. Uh, Jesus said, if someone sins against you, go to them privately, point it out. If they're not going to listen, then bring two witnesses, people who know the story, and bring them along and say, hey, look, we've got to talk about this some more. And if they won't listen, Jesus says, take it to the church, and if they won't listen to the church, treat the person as if they're not a part of your church. Wow, that sounds pretty judgmental. And yet the church is called to do this sometimes. If there was a case of sex abuse in our church, or immorality, a flagrant affair that someone would not repent of, or if there was embezzlement or false teaching, I hope we would have the moral courage as a church to say, look, you've got to repent and turn away from this or we can't have this in our church and that we take a stand against it. But here's what I think we learn from Luke 6. How does Luke 6 apply to that? And I think what it does is two things. First of all, it tells us that anytime we confront someone, whether interpersonally or as a church, it must be with a goal of restoration and forgiveness. The point of church discipline is not to smack people down and beat people and run them off. When we do that, we've missed the point and we're just as judgmental. The point is to help people. And so if someone's not getting it and they just won't repent, the the point is we love them. We're trying to help this really stuck-in-the-mud person. The other thing I see is that from Luke 6 is that church discipline must always, always be a season of church-wide repentance. If we're going to say to somebody, look, you are not living the way, and it's so bad that we need to push you out of the church, it must be done with the whole church corporately yanking logs out of eyes right and left. It needs to be a time of corporate repentance. And so even when we have to make tough calls, and even when I have to, because I love you, say, look, there's something you said or something you did that I think is wrong, it has to be done with humility and with a goal for restoration, and with a willingness to evaluate myself before I ever come talk to you, and maybe even go to someone I know and say, look, I need to go talk to so-and-so about this. Can you tell me things that I'm not seeing about myself even before I go talk to them? And be willing to put ourselves under that kind of scrutiny so that we might go in humility and kindness toward others. We need to follow the example of Jesus in His mercy and tenderness and forgiveness. That's, I think, the point of verses 39 to 40 that we skipped over. He also told them this parable, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? 
If I think I've got it all together and I'm so self-righteous and I'm judgmental toward others, I'm just blind and it's a matter of time before I go headlong into a ditch. But here's the opposite path, verse 40. A student is not above his teacher, but every student who is fully trained will be like his teacher. And so we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's our teacher. We have to think about His graciousness and His forgiveness. And whenever I'm struggling with this issue of judgment and wanting to forgive people and condemn people and all that, I need to think about that cross that we're always singing about and think about how Christ forgave me at such an extravagant expense to Himself. And I need to say, if I'm going to follow that man and be named by his name, then may I exude the same forgiveness and mercy and in a giving spirit that he had. May I be humble and self-critical and recognize that I am so self-deceived and I need God to show me my sins before I can even go to you and help you with the little speck in your life. Christ is our teacher and if we will follow him, he will help us to be fully trained like that. I read a story this week about a Christian man who exhibited this spirit Jesus is talking about in in spades. It was an amazing story. It took place during the Korean War and uh, there was a South Korean Christian who ran an orphanage. And during the war he was captured by the North Koreans, by the communists, and they were going to execute him and then they found out that this guy ran this orphanage and so, you know, he was helping the people as the communists would say and so they they couldn't very well execute him. So uh, what are they going to do? So this um, young communist officer Uh, said, okay, we're going to kill his son instead and we're going to send him free. So they got the guy's 19-year-old son, they killed him in front of the guy and then said, okay, now you go back to the orphanage. Uh, Well, anyway, as the fortunes of war would go, this young communist officer was later captured. And the UN captured him and he was tried and he was convicted and he was sentenced to be killed for, you know, for murder, for for that kind of uh, war crime. And apparently at the, somewhere in the process after the sentencing, this pastor, not pastor, this uh, the guy who ran the orphanage, this Christian, he came forward and he said, please don't kill this young communist officer. He said he didn't know what he was doing. He was young. He's not been trained the right way. He said, give him to me. Let me take him in as my son and let me train him the right way. And, you know, that story struck me because it's like if someone killed my kid, hmm, if I'm going to be honest, I'd be at that guy's execution with popcorn and a Coke. Right? And I would be loving every minute of it. I just know myself. I have that much vindictiveness in me. And I would be like, ooh, and as that guy was swinging at the end of the rope, I'd be clapping. He will not kill my son and get away with it. That's, you know, that's just my natural inclination if I'm really honest with myself. But instead, this man takes this guy into his home and I, I, apparently, according to the story, this young communist officer became a Christian eventually became a pastor. And so it's a beautiful story of the forgiveness and love of God going out from us. And it's like, how could we ever be like that? And the answer, of course, is we can't unless Christ is in us and Christ is enabling me to live that way toward you. But if we were that kind of gracious and forgiving people, even in the face of evil, even, even when I have to help someone else out with a speck, if I could be that kind of gracious and forgiving people, then the world would know for sure that Jesus was real because he would see it in us. Heavenly Father, I just lay myself out before you as a man who has a whole forest sticking out of his own eyes.
And Lord, we, we are all like that. And I pray that You would give us the humility to pull those logs out of our eyes. That You would show us those logs. That, Lord, use the church as a loving, gentle, accountability community where we love each other enough to push back every once in a while when we see that there's something that needs to be spoken of. Lord, help us to do it in the right way. Lord, save us from judgmentalism. Save us from a harsh, condemning spirit. Lord, save us from being self-righteous, snobby Christians. Lord, help us to be like Christ. And even when we have to call a spade a spade, let it be done with such grace that the person hearing it might be able to accept it in love. So Lord, give us this kind of grace. Help us to walk in your radically unique kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have the praise team come and lead us in one final song, singing about the forgiveness that Jesus has given us and our need to forgive others. Would you stand and let's end our time here in song.